0: For today's episode of Flying Podcast, I went down to the Flying Show at Birmingham's NEC. I had interviews lined up with Breezer UK, the Light Aircraft Company, Dave Sykes, Gasco, and the Airspace and Safety Initiative. Uh, An interesting cross-section of people attending the show, I think. The show was pretty much as it had been in uh, previous years, not overly busy, but there were plenty of interesting folk to chat to. So, all in all, probably worth going down if you're uh, into aviation. We arrived at 11.30 on the Sunday and the traffic into the NEC wasn't too bad. The £10 parking fee is a bit steep if you ask me, but uh, they've got a bit of a monopoly going on down there, so uh, you have to stump up the cash. Anyway, the first interview of the day was with uh, Russ Gordon of Absolute Aviation, who market the Breezer aircraft in the UK.
1: So I'm with uh, Russ Gordon of uh, Breezer. It's Absolute Aviation in the UK, is that correct? It is, yep. Obviously, Aviation is our main business, our brokerage, and then Breezer Aircraft UK is a division of. Um, Where is the Breezer made, Russ? The Breezer was made uh, in northern Germany, up in Frisia, up in a place called Bredstedt, and it's been there for a while. Uh, It's a small factory, and they've got their own 400-meter strip as well. And what class of aircraft is it? It's not a microlight, is it? No, nope, it's not a microlight. It's uh, an LSA, one of the, uh, really one of the emerging categories now. Uh, so it's a 600 kilo max weight as opposed to the lower sort of in the 400s of the microlights. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's hopefully going to be next year, having a restricted type certificate in the class and then we can start uh, start taking around flying schools and uh, getting people into it. And just describe basically the aircraft for us. Uh, the aircraft's a low wing, uh, all aluminium um, aircraft. It's made at the factory. All the components are made at the factory, from the the acrylic canopy right down to the uh, the main gear and everything else. Um, engine obviously is a Rotax 912 hundred horse. Uh, cruise is about 100 knots. Uh, max cruise say 120, and fuel burn at 100 knots is around 17, 18 litres an hour. So it's a uh, a good little airplane for touring, um, and you can take two people, full fuel, and a bit of baggage, and still have a bit of spare capacity. So it's, it's a genuine kind of fill it up and go places airplane. It's really what Microlites should be, isn't it, really? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think with the Microlites, they have their place, and they've certainly got a fantastic following. and It's certainly something uh, we, we've looked at. And there is a Microlite version of the Breezer in Germany, which is a, a very popular airplane. Um, but uh, hopefully, we'll be able to start enticing more of the Microlite kind of crowd to not necessarily upgrade but just moves a sort of slightly heavier airplane and with a bit more serious touring potential. As a a pilot
0: myself I'm confused about what an LSA exactly is it's it's like a European
1: permit to fly isn't it? It it is at the moment what they've done is the LSA is originated in the States uh, the light sports aircraft category where it's uh, it it really took off in in huge numbers and huge volume and everybody jumped on the bandwagon and uh, Europe being Europe's been very slow to adopt the, adopt the scheme but I've recognised that it's, it's a very good way of getting people into aeroplanes it's a proper Group A aeroplane but it's, the max weight is about half I guess of what a lot of the Group A aircraft are so um, it's going to take time and EASA being EASA have taken their time but uh, they've started issuing the uh, type certificates for all these LSA types now that meet the meet the standards which ours does but it's the paperwork that takes all the time you know yeah. so uh, we're hoping by April next year April May that we'll have the full c- c- certificate as well so then uh, they would have been, we be able to sort of uh, entice more people into it.
0: Is the LAA involved in any of this certification?
1: No actually it's um, the LAA are apart from it which uh, they never used to be. It, it's strange because the Breezer was available as a kit aeroplane initially um, some, some years ago. There was a few built, uh, quite a few in Germany especially, was built you know, as a kit aircraft, but the factory has shied away from that now. Um, and uh, it's purely available now as a, as a manufactured aircraft. But no, it's, it's going to be under EASA and the CAA as opposed to the LAA. Okay. And how long has it been available in Europe and the UK? The first airplane flew in about 97, 98 actually. It's been around for a, a lot longer than people realise and like I say, it's about, I think there's 160 plus f- flying around Germany especially. Uh, it's just never been very well represented outside of its sort of home country. So, um, you know, in terms of volume of aircraft and how long it's been around, it's about 12, 13 years I guess and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll be growing the numbers available. You said... You're hoping to get certification. You you think it's suitable for flying schools? Yes. It's one thing it actually does really well. Um, It it makes an excellent, very stable platform for for, for flying schools and for training. And it's a very tough little aeroplane. I mean, it's... um, it's got uh, GFR undercarriage, glass fibre reinforced undercarriage, so that's very strong. Uh, it's very simple. There's, there's nothing really to go wrong with it. And, it, and in uh, ultralight form, actually, there's a couple of schools in Germany operating some. A uh, couple of them amassed over 7,000 hours between them in one particular school without one single service bulletin being issued against the airplane. So it's, it's proven its worth, and it's a very nice airplane an easy, simple-to-fly airplane for students, so it's very good for that. Okay. I've had a look at it, it looks like it's uh, built to German quality sort of standards. It's one thing we're very proud of. Um, we're, we're, we're kind of fussy as a company about who we get involved with to a certain extent because obviously it's a, an extension of our own reputation but with the Breezer we're very very happy with the quality I mean it is a typically German made aeroplane um, everything there's no, there's no drilled holes even for the rivets it's all machined all the panels are laser cut at the factory to very high tolerances so yet yeah, the quality is, is long term and it's very 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 high. How are you guys doing in the recession, sales-wise? Um, it's been a slow year for us this year, really, a lot of it down to weather. Uh, some of it also down to the availability of our own demonstrator due to, um, you know, the CAA needs to come and air test it, and the weather was never right. And when the CAA were available, it wasn't yeah. good. When the weather was good, the CAA wasn't available. Uh, and also my own time, my day job, I do something slightly different most of the time. So it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's something that's been a slow this year. But uh, next year, we're going to put a lot more uh, of our own kind of proper effort, if you like, into it and uh, we're going to make more of an effort we're going to definitely increase the presence of the type in the UK because it's, it's what GA in the UK needs is all of these, not just the breezer but all of these LSA types are what going to help start to rejuvenate a kind of dying GA really, let's, yeah. get, let's get more people into them. You know. Where are you based? Uh, we're actually based at Gloucester, uh, we share a facility with RGV Aviation there which is a, a kind of sister company if you like of ours um, and we've been around since about 2006-2007 as a company and uh, yeah we're, we're there to stay so yeah, come along and have a look. And how much will a breezer set me back? Uh, to, to, at today's rate if you had a basic breezer with you know basic radio and instrumentation and that sort of stuff it's about £85,000 including the VAT one like our demonstrator with autopilot and dine-on screens and fuel flow sensors and all the really good stuff on it is about 110,000 pounds, including that. So, in the new year, with the uh, euro getting stronger and uh, and the uh, the pound getting, or rather the pound getting stronger against the euro, I, I expect you know these prices are going to look a lot more reasonable as well. So, hopefully, next year is going to be a big year for everybody.
0: Uh, did I see you doing some sort of deal with uh, training, free training if you buy one?
1: Yes, what we're going to do now is uh, we're, we're very big and I've all, I always have been. I've been in sales, uh, aircraft sales for about, uh, about 12, 13 years and, and I'm very, very keen on people getting the right training for the aeroplane. And uh, So what we're going to do is uh, we're actually hooking up with a company called the Flying Shack at Gloucester Airport I um, know guys we're, we're going to do a proper course with them and we're going to find ourselves a decent structure and we're going to make sure everybody that buys a Breezer gets the, gets the most out of it so instead of us just saying thank you very much here's your keys enjoy your flying uh, they'll go off probably for a couple of days they'll do some strip flying they'll do some abnormal flying you know, abnormal procedures and that sort of stuff some general handling with these guys it'll be a lot of fun and uh, it'll mean they can get the most out of their airplane from day one as opposed to being left to their own resources, which is, uh, you know, and we want to encourage people to come back for more training and do some more exciting things with the airplane as opposed to just fly around mother in law's house and back again, you know. What's the aircraft like to fly compared
0: with, say, a, a micro light?
1: Uh, compared to a micro light, it, it flies a little bit heavier, it flies more like a, a, a group A airplane, if you like. So, it's uh, this particular airplane, the Breezer, it's uh, fairly heavy in roll actually. Um, and not quite so heavy in pitch so it's got a nice feel to it and at slower speeds has a very good feel to it, it's very controllable and it's not sensitive or twitchy um, and it instills a lot of confidence in the pilots that are flying it because it's a very benign simple to fly aeroplane, there's nothing that's really going to catch you out.
0: Would you say it's a, a niche in the market that's been waiting to be filled as you know micro
1: lights are probably a little bit too restrictive weight wise and GA a bit cumbersome? For sure, I think, I think really we've been begging, out, uh, begging for a long time to fill that hole between a group a airplane and the cost that that involves and the microites, which like you say maybe are too restricted in weight you know you, a lot of microites you get a guy and fuel in it and that's pretty much where you're going to stop whereas the breezer like i say is a, is a genuine two seat fill it with fuel put some baggage in and go somewhere airplane and that's that extra 150 or so kilos has made a massive difference to what you can do with the aeroplane
0: Does it have a parachute
1: on it by the way? Uh, yes, ours it does, it's an option you don't have to have one, um, our particular demonstrator does have one and interestingly we haven't sold one without a parachute yet, I think uh, again this is another a technology that's been brought into, into general aviation That with the option, it's nice to have the option, put it that way Ok, that's brilliant, thanks Russ no, You're very welcome, no, any time
0: next stop was the Light Aircraft Company stand. I wanted to talk to them about their current range of aircraft what they were planning and the state of the light aviation market in general Right, I'm with Paul Henry Smith of the Light Aircraft Company and uh, Paul you're based in Norfolk I believe
2: That's correct, we're based at Little Snoring Airfield in Norfolk um, and during the war Little Snoring Airfield was uh, home of 515 uh, Mosquito Squadron so it's uh, quite fitting that uh, an aircraft company is based there now
0: Okay, and tell me about the, uh, the aircraft that you sell. You sell the Sherwood Ranger in two forms at the moment?
2: Yeah, the Sherwood Ranger is, is uh, available currently in two variants, uh, soon to become four. Our current two variants are a 450 kilogram Microlite um, and a 450 kilogram Category A aircraft the different we're often asked, asked the difference between the two and the difference is is simply to do with wing loading and stall speed the the XP is a clip wing version of the microline
0: okay and they're all kit made at the moment
2: yes currently we are by the uh, the powers that be only allowed to uh, sell the aircraft in the united kingdom as either a standard kit or uh, a standard kit with fast build options so the fast build options probably save about 350-400 hours on a build and a basic kit will take about 800 hours to build.
0: Okay, just give us a, a brief run-through of the,
2: the aircraft. Well, the, the design is a very simple one. It's a predominantly aluminium tube construction fuselage, uh, which is then covered with fabric. The wings are aluminium tube spar and drag spar, plywood ribs with spruce uh, rib caps and the whole aircraft as I said is fabric covered so it's a very traditional sort of tiger moth stomp type build uh, The aircraft that you are developing I believe is, is
0: going to be aerobatic capability
2: Yeah, uh, the two variants that are under underway with uh, development and, and final approval at the moment uh, one is an ST uh, ballistic which is designed for the German market uh, that's a non-aerobatic microlite with a ballistic recovery parachute s- system and the XP Aero is an advancement on our standard XP model, the clip wing model um, but we are uh, modifying it and improving it for single seat aerobatics
0: Single seat?
2: Yeah, single seat, so it's a dual seat aircraft so you could uh, put your uh, partner in the front, go fly to an airfield Drop her off to do a bit of shopping uh, or a cup of tea, go out, do a few aerobatics, come back home, fill her up, and take your wife home. Very good. Uh, what's the history
0: of the aircraft design wise? It looks what, 1930s styling?
2: Yep. Yeah, we fill very much a, a niche market. It's a 1930s styled aircraft. It was originally designed by a guy called Russ Light. Uh, in the mid 80s and early 90s he he followed on from an earlier design unfortunately Russ died in uh, early 2000, and the project sort of fell into uh, almost uh, a form of orphanage uh, nobody was looking after it, a few people had had a play with it as far as the LAA were concerned it was an orphan aircraft so my father and I had uh, recently sold our family business and we acquired uh, the intellectual property, design rights and global sale rights for the Sherwood Ranger and put it back into manufacture. So you've been at this job for how long now? Oh, We took over the company in 2007 uh, just as the bailiffs were about to seize everything for non-payment of rent and what have you. Uh, the first two to two and a half years were spent putting the whole project back on an even keel getting the drawings right the build manuals right uh, getting suppliers sourced jigs tools and fixtures made so from really about 2010 we were into the selling mode and so far we've got about 15 to 18 kits out being produced I think the oh, yeah. big thing from that perspective is that uh, out of every four aircraft we sell three are exported so only only one in the U- one is sold in the uk and three are exported uh, which we think is a, a major plus not only for british industry but also a, a major plus for the aviation industry in the uk
0: i believe you have some sort of major concerns for the aviation industry can you give us a potted view on your uh, thoughts
2: yeah I have incredible concerns for the aviation industry in the United Kingdom. Uh, we've gone from, in the 1930s, 30 plus manufacturers of aircraft. Uh, currently, we're down to five. And even the five that are currently in the United Kingdom uh, are not necessarily struggling, but finding it difficult in the economic climate. And certainly finding it difficult with the amount of low-cost uh, aircraft that are coming in from low-cost uh, or low-price-based low, low price based countries such as the Czech Republic, Poland, Italy uh, and we haven't even had China start yet. So we've got an industry that's quite fragile, very dependent on people buying their ar- aircraft um, and the problem will be is if we do not purchase British aircraft and keep companies going. When they're all gone, they'll never come back. We will have lost a huge chunk of our aviation heritage. It'll be a very, very sad day. So we're 100% pro-English manufacturing. Everything we do, we try and manufacture in the United Kingdom, and we do for a a very, very specific reason. Good for you. And what do you think the future holds for you as a company? For us as a company I think we're, we're, we're pretty well set, we've got uh, export contracts in place, we've set up distributors in various European countries and also outside of Europe. Uh, we work very well with the BMAA and the LAA um, and we're working very hard to win A81 approval which will enable us to manufacture finished aircraft. I think we're under, as an industry, we're under threat from over-regulation. So we're, we're campaigning with the Civil Aviation and the Light Aircraft Association, also the BMA, to have a lighter touch on our end of the market. And we're also uh, working actively, as I've said, to, to gain A81 approval to manufacture finished aircraft. And the crazy thing is we can sell finished aircraft in just about any country from our facility in the United Kingdom, but we can't sell them finished in the UK. An insane, insane position, really. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, what other services do you offer over there at uh, your aerodrome, a Little Snoring?
2: Well, Little Snoring, by, by name, is, is somewhat uh, a small, sleepy airfield. Uh, there's not too much goes on there. We are uh, uh, an Mth, uh, an air, a part M, sub-part FGNI maintenance facility, so the light aircraft company not only manufactures the Sherwood Ranger, but we also maintain aircraft up to 5.7 tonnes, singles and twins, and also Rotary Wing, um, and it's just a, a great place to work, a, a fantastic working environment. I believe the Sheward Ranger is named after a pub in WorkSop, is that correct? <laughs> <laughs> I think it probably is. Yeah. I think Russ Light probably enjoyed a, a pint or two after work, yeah. <laughs> so that wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. Brilliant, Ralph, right, well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. On the p
0: stand, I met Dave Sykes, who I'd long waited to interview. As many of you will already know, Dave flew a Flexwing Microlight to Australia a few years back, uh, and that would be uh, a pretty great achievement for an able-bodied person. But uh, for someone in a wheelchair, it was a pretty amazing feat. So, Dave, why did you fly to Australia? What made you pick Australia?
3: Well, I wanted to fly around the world, but I couldn't afford to get and I couldn't get the money together to fly around. So, I decided to go halfway around. And a friend bet me a bottle of uh, lager that I wouldn't do it, so I had to take up the challenge and so try getting the money together for Australia. You're actually scared of heights, aren't you? I've read in your book. Yes, I don't like heights at all. Uh, anything above a thousand feet, I get a bit scared. Yeah.
0: And uh, what route did you plan to fly?
3: I planned to fly um, the route that I actually took, that was the plan from start yeah. to finish, yeah. I did want to go via uh, from. Cyprus, straight across to Jordan and then into Saudi, but the Syrians wanted me to go past at 28,000 feet, so that's why I opted to go via Egypt. And you
0: set off from Rufforth near York?
3: Yep, Rufforth at York, Rufforth East, Microlite Centre, yes. And the route from there down to France? Yep, went from there, from Ruffeth straight down to Headcorn in Kent, then over to Abbeville in France then down to a place called WannaFly
0: Oh yeah, I've interviewed them on the podcast before, Dave and Amanda
3: Yep, correct, Dave and Amanda Yeah, and then from there to the south of France a place called Fayons before going 110 miles over the water to uh, northern Italy, just south or north of Pisa before heading off down to um, down the leg of Italy to Sicily and then on to Malta
4: yeah.
0: And d- decided to uh, raise money for charity which charity were you raising your money for?
3: Uh, I was raising money for the Yorkshire Air Ambulance because yeah. I'd seen a couple of uh, my friends go in it at some point. I'd never been in it, but uh, I thought I'd raise some money for them. Uh, and the aircraft you decided to fly in? I flew in down in a Pegasus Quick 912S engine. Reason being because it's got a small wing and the easier hand to handle on the ground with the hand controls. Yeah. Uh, so I take off and land one hand and it's a lot easier for the steering.
0: What sort of uh, service did you encounter en route? Because I presume when you're flying into sort of countries like uh, Egypt, you have to land at specified airports. What sort of service levels did you uh, get en route?
3: Uh, like when I flew into Egypt, uh, they were a bit hostile, and so yeah. it was an open checkbook, did yeah. the Egyptians. So that as soon as you landed, you got an $800 bill, as soon as they put the chocks under the wheels. Yeah. Um, that was in Egypt, but other places. Some places were nice, you know, treating you well, and other places, like I said, just an open checkbook as rich European and the um, a fortune
0: and I believe the weather en route from having read your book, the weather seemed to be pretty bad nearly every day. Is that normal going you know, at that time of year or or what?
3: No I, I think I took off a bit uh, set off a bit uh, late in the year and yeah. um, so I came across all the monsoon rains and uh, sandstorms in Saudi Arabia, thunderstorms down in Thailand which nearly struck me in by eye lightning and yeah absolutely shocking monsoon weather down in burma as well
0: you had a sandstorm i think where you you nearly, it nearly killed you
3: yeah i got into a sandstorm in saudi arabia which i couldn't see the ground at all for nearly two hours um I was absolutely frightened to death with that yeah yeah
0: it's a testament to the uh, the quality of the aircraft that uh, you know from from the conditions that it seemed like you were flying in that it's, it stood up to it
3: yeah i mean i I wouldn't have thought that the aircraft would have stood up to the conditions I'd been in yeah. so any conditions in England that I've seen so far I'd quite happily fly in them yeah. which is crazy what's it like flying now you've come back here it's a lot easier yeah it's a bit it's a bit tame at the moment because <laughs> all I do all I do is go up for if I, I don't go up for less than two hour flying basically yeah. uh, were there any sort of security issues on route? yeah when I was in Gwadar they uh, bundled me into a taxi with blacked out windows yeah. and gave me an escort there was a a pickup truck in the front with uh, four armed guards on with machine guns that took me to an hotel for the night and uh, I had an armed guard outside the hotel room all night keeping me safe because um, bin laden had just been killed not far away from where i was so it was keeping me safe
0: wow.
3: and you actually crashed at one point um, not so much a crash but um, a bumpy landing, a bumpy landing. They, it was a good 30 mile an hour wind and as I landed, a gust of wind took me off the ground again. I managed to get it down on the ground safely again and drifted off the runway and the front wheel dropped into a, like a manhole without a lid on it and it just ripped the front wheel off, trapping my feet inside the pod and nearly turning me upside down.
0: Uh, any other sort of technical issues with the aircraft uh, en
3: route? Uh, the altimeter stopped working in Burma, and that was, I think it said, minus 900 feet from Burma all the way down. The electric trimmer was getting stuck on and off permanently, and I lost the magneto switch in Burman also, which I had to cut off with a knife and just have the bare wires dangling out to turn the engine on and off.
0: How did you do with fuel? I presume you had like special tanks fitted.
3: Yeah, I had a 80 liter tank fitted to the back seat. So I got basically 145 liters of fuel on board, which gave me roughly 11 to 11 and a half hours flying. And how did you transfer fuel from one to the other? I flew for four hours with a stopwatch and then I had a pipe from the tank in my back seat that went in through the filler cap on the side via yep. a little uh, fuel pump. Filled that up again, and then I got another four. I was flying again straight away. and That worked okay. That worked fine. Absolutely perfect.
0: Uh, and you're in a wheelchair. Um, any particular problems with your disability?
3: Not really. I just live every day, you know, as I, I would here, here in England, really. Yeah. In your
0: book, you, you say that very often you were thrown into the transport, like to and from hotels from the airport. Were you, were you literally sort of manhandled?
3: Yeah, literally. Yeah. I mean, if the van was there, they just looked at me. I just says, just "Throw me in. Don't worry about hurting me. Just get me into the vans. No yeah. problem." And with all these sort of you know adversities that you, you came upon on uh, route, did you ever think about packing it in at any time? A couple of occasions, but then you sit back and you think, "No, I set off. I'm going to get there, so I carry on." Yeah, simple as that. Yeah.
0: You meet some very friendly folk along the way, don't you? Some very he- helpful people. That are- Amongst all the people that are trying to rip you
3: off, there's some really nice people, aren't there? Oh, there's some wonderful people out there. Yeah. When I was in Burma, I went into, I went in with no money, and I came out with no money three weeks later. Yeah? Yeah. Do you still keep in touch with any of these folks that you met on on the way? A couple of them, yeah. Keep emailing me here and there and through Facebook. You know, they, they keep sending me messages.
0: So you went from Rufforth to, uh, you ended up in Sydney. How long did the whole shooting match take you?
3: The whole trip from uh, Ruff to Sydney took me four months uh, 257 hours flying and 16,161 miles that's a rough guess (laughs) and
0: you've been sort of fated since you got back you got lots of awards haven't you
3: I think I've got 10 or 11 awards ranging from the Royal Aero Club's Britannia Trophy which Prince Andrew uh, presented that to the Seagrave Trophy down at the RAC Club Um, which past winners are Lewis Hamilton, Sterling Moss and Andy Green, the land speed record holder. Well, bloody well done. What next, Dave? Uh, Next, going to the South Pole in 2014 and then if I get the money together with sponsors, round the world in 2015.
0: Excellent. Well done
3: and all the best.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. I recently bought a copy of Dave's book, Uh, Wing in a Chair, which describes in a diary style how he flew from Ruffeth, near York, to Sydney, Australia. If someone would like to buy this book off me, then send me an offer by email uh, to the usual email address, which is steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk, uh, and the highest bidder gets the book. I'll send the money on today for his chosen charity, the Yorkshire Air Ambulance. Next up, I wadded over to the guys from GASCO, which is the General Aviation Safety Council. Um, with Mike O'Donoghue of Gasco,
4: and you're going to give us a, a brief overview of what Gasco does for the aviation community. Gasco, the General Aviation Safety Council, has lots of members from uh, the community. We've got about 34 members of all the associations pretty well in the UK that resp- you know, take part in general aviation, including other bodies such as the CAA. Nats and uh, associations and institutes, Royal Institute of Navigation whom I think you've just been talking to but also uh, trade groups uh, such as the British Business and General Aviation Association, British Helicopter Association, uh, Royal Aeronautical Society, Guild of Air Pilots and Air Navigators British uh, Microlite Aircraft Association which of course is a major part of the show here today along with the Light Aircraft Association. I could go on but uh, it is a very comprehensive list and Gasco was formed in 1964 really with the uh, aim of um, bringing down the number of fatal accidents that were happening in general aviation at that time. The accident rate has remained uh, constant over the years. It has dips from year to year and some years are much worse than others clearly in 1964 when the Association was founded or um, the council was founded it, it was more and it's come down partly as a result I'm sure of uh, many other factors but also because of our role in safety education and promotion that's what the council does and we meet three times a year with all the members and there's a board of management that look after the strategy and everything else I run the organization and what we do is we um, come to events like this and we run a, a challenge and you can see on the stand in front of you uh, Quantum, Quantum uh, Pegasus Quantum Microlite with a defect challenge. That's a lot of fun but we make a lot of good safety points at the same time. What we're trying to do by that is to... Uh, engage people and have a chat about safety to promote our own publication of Flight Safety Magazine that's one of the ways we get the message out when we started in 1964 it was called a Flight Safety Bulletin but in recent years it's a proper magazine and it uh, is received uh, by uh, about 15,000 uh, GA pilots and you probably get read it yourself It's. Uh, a good read with an independent editor, and we're very proud of it. We run safety seminars throughout the year. We, we tend to do about four a year. And I'm hoping we'll be able to do more of those. They're very well received, very low cost, so we try to keep the cost down to in the order of 25 to £35 pounds for a day. Of very good safety-related and fun information. That could be things from... Um, uh, m- m- meteorology um, at the Met Office. Um, we tend- we ran a very good helicopter one uh, earlier on this show. I say that uh, it was well received uh, at the Air Accident Investigation Branch at Farnborough. We run with the Royal National Lifeboat Institute a survival and ditching uh, sea survival and ditching course, which uh, was very good using their magnificent facilities. So. That's the range of things we do. Now, for the last three years, we've also been running on behalf of the CAA, the safety evenings, and this gives us a tremendous reach across the country. We love meeting people, and uh, the, the evenings are popular and well attended. We've changed the style and emphasis quite a lot, and trying to make them as interactive, and if you can make safety as light and fun as possible when you are dealing with really a very serious subject we find that people absorb the message better so we try not to scare or frighten or shock or horrify we try to think about what how one could perhaps put different practices into uh, your flying um, that will help um, have a safer outcome
0: where can one find out about these are they
4: on your website well, they're on our website they're published in most of the aviation magazine and, uh, and of course flight safety and uh, I even put them on pea prunes sometimes. I haven't done for a few weeks but uh, um, we probably need to market them a little bit more but we are getting them out, uh, I think most people get to know. Posters go out to the organisations and flying clubs that have requested them well in advance uh, and uh, we, we even send them some posters that they can send to other organizations in the neighborhood to get people there. This year we're going to do um, 40 uh, which is a large number uh, everywhere across the UK from, uh, you know, right to the, from the Isle of Wight up to Wick and from Land's End to um, I think our furthest east is probably uh, Little Snoring yeah. <laughs> so you know, we, we are getting a, a good coverage, yes. and Northern Ireland, we're going to Inniskillen and we may be even doing something with our um, uh, uh, cousins, our newly formed cousins, General Aviation Safety Council of Ireland. So uh, that, you know, that's the sort of scope there. Um, we're, lo- we're also looking to you know engage with people through our, reg- uh, our regional safety offices. Uh, one of them, you've probably met um, Richard Head, he's here today. And we, we've got a volunteer team that's building up um, to about half a dozen at the moment. Very experienced people, but very approachable with, um, you know, good presentational skills yep. and the opportunity to chat about safety. I think one, one of the things at Gasco is a real key for us is to is to share experience and to take good things from one association which very often got good practices for instance British Gliding Association got a very strong safety culture as indeed have all the associations but they've been going for a lot longer than most and they for instance have got some checks and practices that actually apply to everybody and so we've been telling people about it so that perhaps they can be brought into their form of aviation And, and we try to do the same from professional aviation where appropriate And interestingly, our lookout section of our presentation, we were invited to give that to the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force. So I thought that was quite a a breakthrough that we should be doing it that way round. Could you say there's any particular thing that you would expect pilots to do to make their
0: uh, flying safer that you think you're not getting across?
4: Well, I I hope we're getting it across, but I think probably the answer is to we, we, we generally perhaps are not quite as good as we think we are so do keep current and don't be afraid to have a check with an instructor and um and you know seek out advice and try to really keep you, yourself sharp in, in in all of that so that would be good treat every flight you know in remembering that this is the first time you've ever flown this flight yeah. and that would be quite a good thing to take away i think that's yes. good advice uh, a friend and I are thinking
0: of flying uh, a PA-28 around the country as some sort of record-setting attempt across water all the time, so I'd be quite interested in the uh, the ditching courses that you run. Yeah.
5: Well, the first
4: thing I would uh, say is uh, I'm extremely envious of uh, <laughs> that yeah. flight. It sounds a marvellous opportunity. Preparation and planning will be everything in that. So for any over-water legs, well, the first thing to do is to ha- carry the right equipment. And perhaps think more than just the legal minimum. What actually you need for that flight, and then most importantly, know how it works. Because you know it would be a very bad learning environment <laughs> after a, a ditching yeah. to be wondering which uh, lanyard to pull. Yeah. So that would be early advice. And, and we we do run a. We'll be running one next year in probably March or April time. I hope, but I haven't got the dates agreed with the RNLI. And you can bring your own kit along and use it in the pool. Yeah. Um, obviously there's a packing charge for you to have it redone by your survival equipment supplier but you know what an investment to know have had tested yours in a wave pool and things like that the other thing is that the the chances of ditching survival are so much better if you know what the drills are both from your aircraft side so have a good look at your pilots notes um, your pilots operating handbook and see what advice they give they may well give some specific advice if they do it's Good idea to know it. Make sure that you've really thought about your passenger briefing if you've got one. If it's just your friend and you as crew on this trip, then it's probably you and he or she getting to uh, grips with knowing that. But, of course, if you've got passengers on board, it's equally important for them to know how to work it. Um, So preparation is everything, as it it always is in flyer. That's brilliant. Thank you very much, Mike. Pleasure.
0: On the same stand, but working for the CAA... I had a chat with Chris Finnegan about the Airspace and Safety Initiative.
5: Well, the Airspace and Safety Initiative is a joint initiative from the Ministry of Defence, the Civil Aviation Authority and NATS, who's the uh, Air Navigation Service Provider. And the purpose is to um, look at all aspects of aviation and, as the name might suggest, uh, airspace use, particularly infringements, are a concern. So working together with our our colleagues in NATS and the the military and engaging with the general aviation community and anybody else who might or has infringed, the aim is to reduce the number of infringements and thus the risk not only to um, airline traffic, which is our top priority for for safety, but also to other airspace users too. The ASI has a number of projects um, that look at various aspects of of the use of airspace and safety. And we also have a communication education program um, which meets with the GA industry, the GA press and representative bodies to to get the safety messages out to pilots and also to get feedback through the associations from the pilots' perspective.
0: As far as a pilot is concerned, like myself, it's mostly infringements that you're looking to uh, reduce?
5: Well, certainly as far as Nats are concerned, infringements is one of their biggest worries. And the the doomsday scenario is that a GA aircraft strays into controlled airspace, comes into conflict with a a passenger jet with a lot of people on board, and there's a horrible, fatal accident. Well, that really is the nightmare scenario. In actual fact, through the ASI and the work we've, uh, we've done with all the communities I've mentioned, the number of serious infringements has reduced in recent years and that's encouraging But the number of overall infringements has stayed fairly level and what we're seeking to do is engage uh, with pilots get pilots more aware of how they might better plan their flights and execute their flights to avoid infringements and also to make use of emerging technology and um, um, some of the initiatives in recent years have been the Aware Box, yep. Sky Demon things that allow pilots in the cockpit to be aware of exactly where they are in relation to the rest of the airspace and to warn them if they're getting a bit too close, but inference is just part of it, we've other things like runway incursions, um, airborne conflict is um, one that CA is particularly interested in we've had a, a number of collisions in or near the visual circuit in recent years uh, sadly they, they often end in fatalities and we're trying to bear down on that as well. So, infringements, airborne conflict are are but two streams, but anything to do with airspace use and safety is what we're about.
0: I think most pilots will be familiar with you guys from your work on the Olympics, Um, and also, um, when I spoke to the air traffic controllers at Manchester, they said you also organise day trips to towers at uh, controlled control spo- airports like Manchester?
5: Certainly um, the initiative um, that, that's been going for a number of years now, we've tried to revitalise it again this year and it's basically it is visit your local ATC and a number of the um, the service providers at airports uh, are more than happy to have uh, members of the GA community come in, preferably in, in groups and we find that um, For example, we've had the RAF Benson Safety Day recently where GA pilots were invited to fly into Benson and attended a number of presentations from the um, users of the airspace in the area, the controllers, um, the military, and also gave them the opportunity to interact between gliding pilots, microlight pilots, light aeroplane pilots, parachutists, so that everybody understands everybody else's uh, concerns and we get a better understanding of how each other operates. It also demystifies the the air traffic controller uh, as somebody that um, will get a GA pilot into trouble. In fact, the the truth is quite the opposite. The air traffic controller is there to help. And if a GA pilot has got any concerns or any worries about whether he's entirely sure of his position, whether he's heading in the right direction, or whether he's just got a bit of a problem and can do with a bit of help... um, we're trying to encourage the GA pilot to see the air traffic controller as his friend. And getting the two groups together to, to talk and interact puts a human face to a human face and not just a voice on the other end of the radio.
0: Uh, as I said, you one uh, well, of the, the biggest uh, things that I noticed that you produce is the, the work on the uh, air, airspace for the Olympics. How much of a challenge did that pose for you and how successful were you?
5: Well, I think the the Olympics was a success story. Now, we acknowledge that a number of pilots within the restricted area weren't able to fly um, in the same way that um, they they would without such restrictions. But what particularly encouraged us was the way that the GA community engaged with the CAA and with government to minimise the impact of the restrictions as much as possible while still delivering a safe Olympics and GA gets a really big pat on the back for the professional way they conducted themselves. The number of infringements of the airspace was was minimal, and the relationships that were built between the GA representative bodies and the, the regulatory authorities, the military, and the air navigation service providers were really strengthened. And the legacy we hope to take forward from that is, is to build on those relationships and to make sure that we continue the dialogue so that uh, we can work together to solve problems rather than it being an us and them situation. The other good thing about the Olympics, um, which perhaps people won't realise quite as much, was how we allowed things to happen at the Olympic ceremonies that perhaps in in years gone by we might not have been so ready to accept. For example, I was invited to a meeting in London um, at Low Cog where a man in a wheelchair um, made a pitch to me saying that he wanted to be able to fly an aeroplane over the Olympic Stadium for the Paralympic opening ceremony after dark, and he wanted flames coming out of the uh, the wingtips, he wanted the whole underside lit up so everybody could see it, and he wanted a disabled pilot to fly the aeroplane. Oh, and by the way, he only had about 20 hours total experience. And then I think he expected me to say, what? You must be joking. But actually, I was quite inspired by that, and I thought, this is something that I'd like to see too and and our approach was very much a case of okay if you can show us how you can do this safely then we'll do everything we can to facilitate it and we worked very closely with, with their ability with their engineering company with our colleagues in Europe and eventually managed to bring the whole package together And it was quite a challenge, and a lot of people put a lot of uh, additional time and effort into it. But I think you'll agree, if you've seen the footage of that aircraft opening the Paralympic ceremony, it was all worthwhile. Inspirational. Fantastic.
0: Well, that's brilliant. Thank you very much, Chris. Well, a big thanks to all for taking part. As you heard, uh, I'm thinking of flying with uh, Scott Beaver around the country next April. Scott's project is to set a record time for the flight around the UK in aid of a couple of charities, those being the Rainbow Trust and the Make-A-Wish Foundation. The project is titled Wings for Wishes. Uh, If anyone would like to sponsor Scott or just donate some money to his uh, chosen charities uh, or keep track of his progress, then please visit the webpage. Details are on the Flying Podcast website at www.flyingpodcast.co.uk. Okay, well that's it for another episode. Keep the emails coming into the usual address, Steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk.
2: Thanks for listening. I look forward to speaking to you all again soon.